0: This is Salt and Spine.
1: To be able to see the recipe before you even read the title or understand the ingredients, you're going to, you have an instant knee knee jerk reaction. You're like, I want to eat that or you don't have to sit there and read through it. It's like you can make that decision within three minutes. So hopefully the photography is good, you know, and people are to cook more because the photography is enticing.
0: I put myself in there so people of color can imagine themselves in the kitchen making those dishes because food is for everyone to cook. It's not restricted to a certain class of population of the, as long as obviously all these other things of socioeconomics come in. I want everybody who wants to cook to be able to see themselves making things, enjoying them and trying, trying new things.
2: I'm Clea Worster, and you're listening to Salt and Spine Stories Behind Cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a special episode, the second episode in our four part series, Behind the Spine. We're stepping away from a focus on the authors this month to hear from some of the other talented folks who helped to create the cookbooks that we all know and love. You'll hear from cookbook designers, recipe developers, literary agents, and photographers, all about how cookbooks are made from proposal to printing. Today's episode is all about the mouthwatering photography that fills the pages of our favorite cookbooks. You just heard from today's guests, Eva Kalenko and Nick Sharma. Nick Sharma is the creator of the food blog, A Brown Table, the author of two cookbooks, Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food, and The Flavor Equation, The Science of Great Cooking Explained in More Than 100 Essential Recipes. Nick transitioned from working as a molecular biologist to cooking with a stodge at a bakery. He's now written for the New York Times, Food 52, and Sirius 8s, where he also sometimes takes photos. Nick started his blog with no idea how to take photos, but he bought himself an old book made by Kodak on how to photograph and taught himself.
0: When I started the blog, I got a simple Nikon Coolpix, and the reason I went with Nikon was because my dad always used either Nikon or Hasselblad. Hasselblad was out of my budget; it's just ridiculously expensive, and Nikon was something that I could do. And this required um, no technical expertise. You could just go with the automatic mode and shoot away and call it a day. And so I started out with that, with a blog. And then I realized that, gosh, like looking at some of these other blogs, everything is just so stunning. The photos, I can't photograph, I can't style. I hate it because I was failing at it miserably. And so I said, you know what, maybe take a pause on blogging and learn how to photograph. So that's what I did. I took a pause on blogging instead of just throwing content out there that was senseless. Because at the time, also my blog was not a career I was. I didn't start a blog to become a, to make it a career. A career in science at the time. This was just something I was doing for fun to just you know kill my time and kind of try and attempt at being creative. Um, and so I got the Nikon Coolpix. It was okay. Uh, Then I spoke to my dad who told me, why don't you just get, uh," and at that time, digital cameras were coming out. God, I sound like an old, like really old when I say this. Uh, Mm -hmm. Digital cameras are coming out. And so I got one, um, I'd moved from the Nikon Coolpix to, I got a Nikon DSLR, but not full frame, Uh, just the regular, because it was cheap. And I mean, that was expensive for me because I was on a student budget. So I got that. And then I got like just a basic 50mm uh, lens, not zoom, um, and a prime lens. And I started working with that. And that actually, because there were more controls, funny enough, it it was a little scary at first, but it mm-hmm. gave me more control of the camera, helped me understand how light works and all these things. And um, at the time I had taken a trip to New York and I visited an old bookstore in Dumbo I don't remember the name of the store, but they had all these old uh, photography books. And I ended up getting this book by Kodak that was published many, many years ago. Uh, like the book is so tattered. And I went through that book and read it and it explained the basics. It This was before the date. So the book was written for a regular camp, like a... Uh, manual camera with film, but not for DSLR. So all of the DSLR instructions were not there. But what it did tell me was, this is how people compose image. This is how you use a flash. This is how you introduce light, remove light. And so all those basics uh, were in that book. And I still treasure that book. It's quite special to me. So I Still go back to that book when I forget things or I need a refresher. Uh, but that book taught me quite a bit.
2: When he got his cookbook deal for season, it was really important to Nick that he'd be responsible for the photos and the food styling in the same way that he'd always been for his blog. But he had no idea how to shoot a cookbook. So he reached out to food photographers and Eva, our other guest for today, agreed to let him sit in on a shoot she was doing for William Sonoma. Eva Kalenko is an accomplished cookbook photographer, but she started out by studying advertising photography in school and worked in editorial before she ever started shooting food exclusively.
1: I knew, I mean, since I was seven, that I was going to pursue some kind of field art. I tried everything under the sun. And when I took a black and white photography class, I pretty much immediately fell pretty deeply in love. And... I don't, I never really looked back after that. So that was in community college. And then I went straight to study photography at the Academy of art in San Francisco and specifically studied advertising photography. Um, and was doing that for a long time and actually got picked up with a rep before I graduated school. So my career kicked off really quickly in the beginning of my career. I was focused on shooting, um, people more conceptual photography it wasn't until about 8 years ago when i was pregnant and kind of giving myself a little bit more of an opportunity to explore different subject matters that i started to parlay and is something i've been passionate about like photography for a long time but that stems from even way like early in my childhood and I would say that it really was like the marriage of my like life passion for food and my career passion for photography, the one like my career like really took off um, before then it was I was doing OK, but it really took me kind of becoming a whole person and pursuing all my passions as a single human being to for I think it, everything to catch on and everything clicked and then it snowballed from from there my passion for food has been there for a really long time and then i mean living in the bay area is such an amazing opportunity to try everything and to get freshest ingredients and produce so it's just always been such a big part of my life i always loved going to new restaurants and trying just like everything i could and i cooked a lot at home and actually it's kind of like how things started like i started cooking recipes at home and I was like oh maybe I should just photograph this I mean I am a photographer and then I mean blogging was kind of starting to take off back then so I started like a little blog and that's kind of just like the very early stages of how that transition started to happen for me I got more and more into it and I reached out to a couple local bloggers and just kind of offered my services for free just like oh if you have any food content I'd love to help you shoot it which was interesting decision because that was like a major step back kind of words for me but i was just wanting to give myself that opportunity to explore something with no no pressure no strings attached no nobody to answer to except just like is this going to bring me joy you know is this where i want to take my career i did that for two months and then weldon no one knocked on my door and asked me to shoot a cookbook
2: Now, Eva has shot over 30 cookbooks, including East Bay Cooks and Food Between Friends. And she says that's not usually how it works.
1: So I would say it's pretty rare that an author will come knocking on my door and say, you're the one, let's just do this. So I would imagine that we're interviewing a few people. So the first step is usually like a face-to-face video call with the author, just kind of feel each other out, you know, and they're kind of probably vetting me to see my personality and what i have to offer and how we would work together etc so um that's a really fun conversation uh to be able to meet like a new author and kind of get into their head a little bit and start to explore how i would express their vision you know in photography and help achieve their dreams basically like these authors have been working for you know like years A lifetime, and so by the time they're me, it's like pretty close to the end of their journey. And to be able to seal the package up with just like beauty, it's kind of just the icing on the cake, you know. And it's always such an honor to even just be part of that conversation.
2: Eva says, "Photographing a cookbook is, of course, about her own aesthetic, but even more so, it's about letting the author shine and making the cookbook
1: that they've envisioned possible." Obviously, I come to the table with a lot of experience, you know, like I. I think I have almost 30 books under my belt now in my short eight year career doing cookbooks. So I have that to offer and I have kind of like a general aesthetic, like the way I like to shoot. I I just think that's unavoidable, right? It's just the way my eyeballs see the world, but I fully am taking my ego out of the picture. Like it's not my name that the author on the book, like for me, it really is about understanding what the author is trying to communicate and how they want to communicate that and then doing my best to take all the tools in my kit to achieving their vision, maybe hopefully better than they had envisioned.
2: Now, if you're the cookbook author and the photographer and the stylist of the book, it's less about mediating the author's vision and more about suiting the style of photography to the project at hand.
0: So with every cookbook, what I've decided to do is give it its own theme so they don't feel connected in any way. Uh, because that's so important that the photos need to apply to the central hypothesis or the thesis of the book. So with season, the book was more personal. It was about my journey as an immigrant coming to America, coming out. So a lot of the photos were shot in India. Um, and, and not the recipes, but all the photos where, you know, we had gone to Bombay where I was born and brought up. And then we went to Goa where my mother's family is from. And that's the, that is what I identify as my Indian culture. Um, and so, um, those were the two, um, cities that we kind of, I mean, not cities, those are the two places we went to and I photographed and came back. And so you see a lot of these images that kind of reflect uh, the life. And so there were things that I wanted to bring were the markets where in, you know, in Bombay, my parents have a fishmonger that comes to the house once a week and my mother buys fish from her. Um, And so, but they're also like literally a block away from the house, uh, from the building where my parents live. And all the fish is laid out, and you go and you buy your fish if they didn't come to your house, or you you know you want to buy fresh fish, uh, because my parents live right on like right by the beach, so near a fishing village, so you can get all that food. So those are some of the images that are personal to me that I grew up with, and so they convey it in the book. Uh, then the recipes in that were much more blo- closer towards my blog a brown table at that point because a lot of the the blog was also reflect. It was never called a brown table cookbook, but it was definitely a reflective. The content of the recipes were all reflective of my journey, which is what my blog is. And so for that, the styling was quite similar to the blog where there was low light. Um, every, I like to say that, that um, everything is photographed kind of like a ballerina on stage where the focus is on her. Everything else falls in the background. So that's kind of like everything is shot in that book. Um, with the flavor equation, things were very different because um, I was focusing on the science of cooking. And so in that book, a lot of the photos are macro. They're strong textures, strong, vibrant colors. Uh, Not every image is dark. In fact, a lot of those images, unlike Caesar, are much more highly contrasted, uh, colorful, and much more lively in a way. Um, There's also a lot of... One of the things I did with both books is also I'm quite fond of the cooking process more than the final hero shot. So I tried to bring in those images of the smoke emanating from the meat or steam And, you know, if you open the flavor equation, the first uh, photo inside the book is of the lemon zest or lime zest being, um, you know, like the essential oils flying out. So, God, I sacrificed so many lemons for that. But that's, you know, those are the kind of things that are in the book. And then... Uh, There were some things that I kind of wanted to bring in, and this was more personal, just to go back to a lab and see if I can get microscopic shots of certain things that I think would help the reader, not to show off my skills, uh, but it was more about showing a reader that, you know what, they all look same from the naked eye, but when you look under a microscope, they're actually structurally different, which is why they behave different. And so there are Mm -hmm. close-ups of kosher salt, fine sea salt. Uh, sugar crystals, brown sugar. So people have an understanding that um, it's not sometimes things we just throw at them, but they're actually physically different, which is what affects the cooking process.
2: For Nick, the photos start with the recipes, which makes sense, he's also the cook. But that process of achieving the vision for Eva looks a little bit differently. It usually begins the visual mood board that hangs in the studio throughout a shoot. The mood board is a way to get everyone on the same page and working towards a cohesive aesthetic. Eva works on these boards in collaboration with the author and the other
1: creatives on the project to figure out what the final output might look like. I mean, you can say all the, the words you want to say, right? Oh, we like punchy light and vibrant color and whatever. I mean, when you picture those things in your mind, what I picture is probably different than what you picture. So having a mood board's a really helpful tool just to make sure everybody's kind of on the same general page. And that really, um, sometimes that's something that I put together. Sometimes that's something that um, the creative director, the art director at the publishing house will put together. Um, so that helps me understand their vision. Sometimes it's the author. Um, sometimes it's all of us. There's not really any one set way that we do it, but we always do end up with some kind of visual inspiration because that we're making visual things like that is the right way to communicate. Um, and then that's really just a jumping off point. Like, you know, I love vision boards because it gives you a vibe, but like, there's no like, Oh, we're going to shoot this, you know, we're not copying anything. Um, and a lot of times because my collection of work is so expensive, like a lot of mood board images people pull are from my website. So, um, it's like, Oh yeah, I know how to do that. (laughs)
2: Once everybody's on the same page, the fun begins. Eva said cookbook shoots can be anywhere from five to nine days, and the team is working under a couple of big constraints, mainly the timing and especially the budget.
1: So there's budget, so we know exactly how many days we're shooting. Um, and the budget's always the limitation. I mean, I would shoot a cookbook for two months if I was given the opportunity to do that. That would be awesome. Um, but not infinite. Um, so it's all based on pretty much the recipe count. And these days, I mean, when I started shooting books, it's evolved so much in the past eight years, you know, in the early days we'd shoot a book and it would be like, maybe we'd shoot like a fourth or maybe a half of the recipes in the book would get a photo. And now it's a hundred percent. I mean, books are like this thick and there's 120 recipes in the book. You're shooting 120. So have become longer, which has been really fun. Um, and obviously everybody loves good eye candy in a book, and whoever wants to cook a recipe they can't see, I don't know. <laughs> so it's a lot I would say the average now is like seven to ten days, because I mean a recipes generally have like a hundred recipes in them now. Um yeah, it's pretty much nine to five days. And we'll I mean, hopefully we get to take a weekend. It, that can vary. If the author's traveling in from out of town, sometimes we have to chunk it in one piece. Um, Sometimes books have seasonality. So we'll shoot two separate weeks, which is really nice. I enjoy spreading it out a little bit. It gives you a little bit of time to kind of... It's always nice to walk away from a project and come back with fresh eyes, you know? Um, So that's kind of the best way. If we can manage, we'll do you know, uh, like a week in late spring and then another week in summer or something. But that all just depends on what the publishing deadlines are. Sometimes that's not, that's like a luxury we can't then that's okay. But for the most part, to answer your question about how grueling it is, I love what I do like full hearted. I love the people I work with. Um, and we come to work every day, like ready to make some beautiful pictures together i mean i can't it's it's almost like as we're draining our cup we're filling it too you know like i mean of course everybody's like uh, needs a coffee once in a while but what's fulfilling and you're refreshing your creative energy as you are spending it
2: budgets timelines keeping the crew caffeinated these aren't the only challenges there are so many moving parts when you're shooting a cookbook In fact, Eva says her biggest pet peeve is being too organized because it doesn't leave room for the fun and the flexibility that shooting a cookbook
1: inspires. I really think keeping a lot of the process pretty organic is important for the success of a book. So, and like, because I like to print things and hang things up and you start to see kind of the flow of the book together, come together, um, like you start with the mood board. It looks like something. And then you interpret that as a group together. It starts to to become its own vision board at some point, like day three. Like that original mood board doesn't even need to exist because we're creating our own to build off of. And so I think when sh- when shots are overplanned, like I just think there's missed opportunities because you get those blinders on and stuff. So that would doesn't happen that often. I mean, we all have seen the same stack of cookies and the same dishes kind of presented in the same way. And we're always trying to find new ways to do things. And sometimes doing it the way we're familiar with and just having really beautiful props and really beautiful food styling is plenty enough. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's not super conceptual photography, but it is nice to try to be like, well, what can we do to make this page stand out? And if I get creatively stuck, I'm in a room full of four other people that come to the table with ideas. So we just brainstorm and I've never gotten to a situation where we're like, I have no idea, you know? And if we get to that where it's just like, well, nobody has a great idea. You just start somewhere and then end up somewhere. And usually where you end up is better where you than where you started. And it's fine. Definitely for cookbooks, budget is always a constraint. And the goal is really to make an outstanding book. You know, I don't want to Limit the author's vision. So we're always just really trying and pushing really hard to achieve everything and go above and beyond to make it just the book that they dreamed of since they conceived their project. The way cookbooks kind of manifest themselves, at least uh, the way I do them, I don't know how anybody else does them. I mean, we come to set, we have general ideas on what we're doing. We have a schedule, thank goodness, to very well-organized food stylists. But when it comes to like, how is this going to be shown? What color are we going to shoot it on? How are we plating it? Like, these are decisions we make throughout the day. Like, and in the end, I think the process is funner in that sense. It's collaborative, which love. And you kind of make the most of all the opportunities that are presented to you when you work in that kind of like super organic flow. Whereas like, if you have some very regimented list of, We have to shoot this, it needs to be plated in two bowls. We want gold silverware and orange glassware filled with sparkling water and two lungs, you'll never see anything else, even if something better is presented to you. If you are told that's the box you have to live in, then that's where you end up. But if you come to set and you're like, well, this could be anything, like we look around and you're like, what are the best opportunities that are in front of me to present? like this specific dish and then the best work is made that way
2: i'm clea Worster, salt and spine producer you can follow us on instagram at salt and spine where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books each week we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks from jacques pepin and nigella lawson to samin nozrat and carla hall salt and spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors if you're a new listener check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors plus we publish delicious and exclusive recipes hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you and so much more and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you the best way to support our work here at salt and spine is by subscribing to our patreon page You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash saltandspine. Nick too said that taking good photographs is all about responding to the food and the ingredients at hand. Styling can be a challenge with some dishes and it's a lot easier with others. For example, when Nick is cooking a dish that's brown, he often adds bright green herbs to create some contrast in the photo and make it more appealing to the readers. Sometimes he'll even shift the original ingredients to one with more color like he did in his sweet potato babinka in season.
0: You know like brown dishes are one of the hardest things to style in cooking, right? You have to add some fresh herbs or if it's a sweet dish, then you add some kind of cream or a glaze, right? When it comes to certain vegetables, like white sweet potatoes, when you cook them, it does not look good. Like there's no masking it. There's there's nothing polite that I can say. It just looks like, it kind of looks like a vampire that's been pureed and lacking life. And I mean, it's just like not appetizing and then the top part will caramelize a little bit. Because of the way the babinka is made, it caramelizes a little bit on top. So it's like, you know, like lightly brown from the caramelization on top. So that's acceptable. And then you like cut through it. It's like white and it's just like so sad. So I decided, and because I personally like sweet potatoes that are colored, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, the purple, uh, the purple sweet potatoes or um, the orange jewel, the flesh. And so I went with the orange one because, first of all, that's the most easily available one actually whites would be sweet potatoes are not that easily available to you and then the other thing that happens with a lot of images is that people get primed for color and this is mm. something that when i was interviewing people with uh, for the flavor equation just to i was doing some kind of informal research uh, stuff and people were always primed to thinking food is a certain color and so in america Uh, The garnet or the jeweled sweet potatoes, which are orange, reddish and uh, orange and yellow in color, are extremely popular. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people just associate that directly over there. Um, And so it made sense for me to do that.
2: But as home cooks become more reliant on photos to learn how to cook the dish, it's even more important to Nick to keep things simple and accessible. If the finished dish is too intimidating, home cooks might steer away from giving it a shot, thinking that it might be too difficult for them to do in their own kitchen.
0: Because everything has become so visual in this day and age, people cannot cook a recipe without seeing it as an endpoint. And that's the problem because also we've moved from this age where in previous cookbooks there were... No illustrations either at one point. Then illustrations came yeah. in and then there were still cookbooks like Marcella Hazan's cookbook and Madhu Jafri's cookbooks where everything was just handwritten. There were I mean, not handwritten, but written. And there were no mm-hmm. images of any sort. And then now we've come to this day and age where every recipe has to have a photo. Uh, so people are so right. dependent on the photo. And now we've moved to video, which is, uh, I, I'm guessing people won't, will become so sort of reliant also on technique to be demonstrated in a video versus reading the instructions. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely uh, the evolution of mankind and recipes.
2: And for Eva, the photography in a cookbook brings so much more to the table than just a written recipe by itself could. From basic instructions like how to slice a certain ingredient to inspiring home cooks to try out the recipe in the first place.
1: I mean, I love a photo-rich cookbook. I mean, that's why cookbooks are so popular, right? It's because they're so beautiful and they're so beautifully designed and the recipes look so delicious. It in- inspires everybody to cook and pick it up and flip through it. Um, I mean, the more pictures in a book, I think the better, but I'm very biased in that way. <laughs> um, but it's a lot of challenges because I wouldn't, I would say that the more pictures you need in a book, the more production time we need. And I wouldn't say that the budgets have scaled accordingly, considering more photography is required in a project. Um, so it's always a squeeze to make it happen. Like, how do we fit in like 10 more extra images or, you know, to our schedule when we don't have an, we don't get an extra day. I mean, it probably depends on the person that's picking it up. Chefs in particular were probably more experienced home cooks like reading and will read the head notes and will read through a recipe and fully understand what is going on there. But I can't do that. Like I kind of need to see a photo to understand how things are cut or chopped or put together. I think for, I mean, the general person picking up a cookbook, it's to be able to see the recipe before you even read the title or understand the ingredients, you're going to, you have an instant knee knee jerk reaction. You're like, I want to eat that. Or like, "Mm, that's that one's not right. And you don't have to sit there and read through it. It's like, you can make that decision within three minutes. So hopefully the photography is good, you know, and people are to cook more because the photography is enticing. Just like Eva, Nick knows that the
2: hero shot will often be the home cook's first inspiration to cook a new recipe but it isn't the only photo that matters in a cookbook. As a cook himself, Nick sees that it's really important that photos don't just show off the end point, but that they also break down the process and guide a home cook towards a delicious meal so that they feel empowered and capable of cooking the new recipe at home.
0: I think technique and instruction are so important. Sometimes I really don't care about the hero photo. When I'm trying to learn something, the instructions really help me, especially with pies. I don't know how people write those instructions out because they're so complicated sometimes. The photos speak a thousand words. Uh, There are some times when I think uh, an image is very useful when it's trying to convey what to look for. And sometimes words don't do it justice. This is where I think uh, images really help. But there's also this negative side to it where people become so dependent on the image that they are so hell-bent and focused on trying to achieve that versus Mm -hmm. actually just enjoy the process of cooking it and tasting the recipe, or they'll try to compare their work to someone who's actually made the dish like several times. So like in pie making for example, I keep bringing up pie making, because that's one of the most like (laughs) common places where I see this. Um, If you know, pie, I'm not a pie expert by any means, but when I see people making pies um, who are experts, their crusts are beautiful, flaky. But when I make it at home, the first time, with if I'm working with the dough for the first time, I don't get those same results. So on, um, it affects my self-confidence. Am I doing this mm-hmm. bad? And so that's also something to think about because we're living in a visual age. We're constantly comparing ourselves to each other, but also the work that we do to everyone else. And I think... Yeah. Um, Something that's not spoken about in terms of photography is that, especially with cooking, how it actually can make people confident, but it can also make people less confident.
2: As both our guests today have noted, there's a big push in the cookbook industry to create much more visual content than ever before. And for us home cooks, it's not a bad thing. More information can be really helpful. The increase in visual content has also made room for more variety and creativity, Eva talked to us about the shifts she's seen over her eight-year career as a cookbook photographer, like the one away from a more rustic vibe to that of a more conceptual one. For Eva, that's really exciting. It enables her to step outside the box when she's shooting and focus on things other than just the tabletop.
1: With anything in the arts, you know, there's trends and things change. And for a long time when I started photography, things were super lifestyle and rustic and farmhouse and everything wood and you know either moody shadows but everything was soft lit and things were like shallow depth of field and like we've pretty i mean we've gone a pretty hard 180 from that since those days and it hasn't been a transition it didn't happen overnight but like so the the trends and kind of like the way things are styled have certainly changed and i'm fully on board with that like i like super eclectic and i really love um kind of like, yeah, just really eclectic styling and not so much being pigeonholed into like that rustic world. It's nice to have some rustic touches sometimes, but going more modern and also more postmodern and being a little more like more is more. Cause that's cool too, you know, and not, not being so minimalist. And, um, I love any you know, to tell stories with images. So the trend of photography going more conceptual in the food industry is exciting to me. Um, That's definitely something I have explored and want to continue exploring, kind of not just so like, this is what your tabletop would really look like in real life. Like, okay, cool. We see that all the time. Like, what can we present this that's like interesting and a little more outside the box and stuff? And yeah, I think it's I think it's exciting. It's never the same. It's always changing.
2: Nick also talked to us about trends, though he's not as excited to jump on the bandwagon when a new trend comes up. Nick has talked before in other interviews about trying to ensure that his hands, his brown skin, are a focal point of his photographs, not only as a representation of many cooks of color, but also as an invitation for people of color to envision themselves in the kitchen as confident cooks. Nick is intentional, too, about the props that he chooses, making sure that the images in his books are true to what a home cook might be able to do, and even true to how Indian food would be prepared in the home.
0: It is always very important to stay away from trends because with trends, what happens is everyone jumps on the train and that means Mm -hmm. your work won't stand out. So you have to be on a different train. And so one of the things I did intentionally was when I started my blog, I was showing my hands quite a bit and with in season Mm -hmm. also. And then I realized that became such an important topic of conversation after I did it because of the book and my work. I was getting interviewed about it Mm -hmm. and I started to notice everyone else jumping on the bandwagon. And I mean, you won't believe it. I've seen peop- cookbooks written by white authors where they've used brown people or black people in the photos. They don't show the face. And so that felt awkward to me that it was going in this direction. So it turned me off a little bit. And then uh, so I tried, my skin is brown or dark brown, you could call it. Um, but I put myself in there so people of color can imagine themselves in the kitchen making those dishes because food is for everyone to cook. It's not restricted to a certain class or population of population as long as Obviously, all these other things of socioeconomics come in. Uh, but I want everybody who wants to cook to be able to see themselves making things, enjoying them and trying trying new things. Uh, the second thing is um, I avoid excessive styling. So one of the other things that I think I I have noticed is that there are these certain stereotypical uh, things that are played out with, with like Indian food, for example, um, you know, this comes up mm-hmm. quite a bit. People want to see the old Indian grandmother slaving in the kitchen over a cold mm. stove, blowing into the smoke, coughing away, because that apparently makes the food much more nostalgic. It makes the food... Um, how do you say, uh, there's like a romance that comes in. It's weird. It's like this, it's this, you know, I call it like an inappropriate romance because first of all, you shouldn't mm-hmm. expect women to cook in the kitchen. That's wrong. Uh, my mother yeah. hates cooking. And so I grew up in a family where my mother does not enter the kitchen and I'm quite comfortable with that. She doesn't cook for me when she comes. I cook for her. So there's this like weird gender bias that people bring in. Yeah. The second thing is this cultural bias where people feel that the old grandmother should be slaving in the kitchen, which is also so wrong. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't make the food taste any better. Like someone's slaving away in the kitchen <laughs> with a heavy, and I've heard people actually say this, oh, someone made it by hand, so it tastes better. That's bullshit. Uh, if someone's grinding it in a blender and I give you a blind taste, you will not notice the difference, yeah, right? And so it's all about knowing how to season and to cook it. And, you know, appliances make a cook's life easier in the kitchen. So my grandmother who did, she loved to cook. Her name was Lucy. So Lucy loved to cook. And Lucy would use the blender all the time. And Mm -hmm. I've seen people say, oh, my God, like, oh, you know, my so-and-so so-and-so uh like made like this chutney grounded over the stone and stuff and so it tastes better than what was in a blender and then i've heard like people who haven't been to india also comment like this and it really bothers Mm. me because that's incorrect and then there are times when i talk about the science of indian cooking quite a bit or just the science of asian cultures and uh food in general and so i've heard people saying that um I remember writing an article about the science of making bread in India, flatbread roti and chapati. And there were like, there was this uh, guy who was white who actually tweeted at me and said, Indian grandmothers would be rolling right now in anger if they read this tweet. And I, and I had quoted something about starch digestion values. And this is how you make, because I'm also trying to teach a Western audience how to make Indian food. So it's not intimidating to them using the ingredients available Mm -hmm. here. And I'm thinking about it, and I didn't respond to it because I don't respond to most annoying tweets. I've become a mature, but I had literally pulled the information out of a research paper printed in India by Indian scientists who had Mm. researched this topic. And so you sound so ignorant commenting at this. And then there's also this racial bias that you have that Indians should be steeped in some archaic model of what you think a kitchen should be like pre-British Raj days or something, which is so bizarre. I mean, uh, why wouldn't Indian scientists want to research these things? And also, there's also this other thing like homemade is better. No, it's not true. Homemade is not always better. Sometimes it's too much work. And then at times, um, I mean, often like, and even in India, uh, housewives and women and families and men, everyone who cooks in India will go and buy pre-made spice blends As shortcuts. So it's quite common. It's like my family, I don't actually remember my mother going and getting spices from some farm and then having someone grind them, just (laughs) buy them commercially. And so I think there are a lot of these biases and I try to avoid that with my writing and also food styling. So I rarely use props that are Indian. Uh, not because mm-hmm. I don't like them. In fact, I actually, I mean, I've got that thing behind me, that roti box, the brass little thing that's oh, yeah. over there. Uh, that's for my new kitchen. But those are, those are precious to me. At the same time, I don't want to present the roti in that, not because I don't like the box, but I want people to think that this can exist outside that def- definition of what you think Indian food is or an Indian kitchen should look like. You can see it in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so that helps you make it.
2: After learning about all the ways that Eva and Nick both strive to create enticing photographs and stay true to the vision of the book that they're working on, I also wanted to know where they look to for inspiration, if there were any cookbooks that blew them away. For Eva, it's the books that haven't been made yet, the ones that she's
1: helping authors to make. That's something I ask every author. We have our initial conversation. I'm like, do you have a mood board going? Cool, can I see it? Do you have... Like, what are the cookbooks that you are looking to that have some of the elements you like? And my favorite answers are when people come, they they hand me a stack of books or links or whatever. And they're like, I like this book because it's nice this way. I like this book because the photography is like this. I like, so it's like not taking one book and saying, hey, I want to make a book like this. It's saying, hey, here's, I I didn't find the book that I want to make, right? That's why I think, we're all inspired to create something is because we haven't found it yet, right? Like these authors are like, "Well, I want to make this book because this is how I cook, and I don't see anybody else doing it this way, or like I have something to offer that's new and and that's why people buy it because it's it's a different presentation of information that may be similar, but I've picked up plenty of books in my life where I'm like, "Oh, I should have known that. Why did I never like put those like that concept together and now I can make ten different thing, different dishes, but with almost, you know, no different amount of effort or I said that weird, but you know what I mean.
2: Nick had a different answer.
0: Jelena, no doubt. I mean, Jelena just blew me away. Um and actually that's what led me to sign on to my publisher because Chronicle Books produced mm. Jelena. And then okay. I ended up coincidentally with the same public with the same editor who's worked on all my books so far. And she's amazing, Sarah Belings. And I think one of the, you know, a shout out to Chronicle Books because first of all they took an auth- they took on someone who had never written a cookbook uh, or mm-hmm. photographed a cookbook also and gave me, the f- gave me full freedom from day one to be involved in the process and have a say uh, even to the quality of paper and that's why I stayed on with them for uh, even my next two books that I'm working on with them mm-hmm. same editor, same publisher yeah. just because they gave me so much freedom to express myself in my work. Mm-hmm.
2: And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned next week. We'll be looking at the logistics of getting a cookbook published and talking with Diane Jacob, author of Will Write for Food, and literary agents Monica Woods and Rika Alonik about the work that they do. You can find bonus content from our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com slash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Clea Worster, and our host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. They offer virtual and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at thecivickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edville San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.